Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And exactly half of everything you expect is true on this podcast. We (laughs) are making a podcast, we did not take a walk, and we are talking about what astonished us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching about, but we're, we're all... It's all the same this week, so um, you'll get half the half the astonishment, half the thinking, and half the preaching. So, I don't except know. for the Hooray. preaching, I think we're preaching something different. As a matter of fact, I know we are. Yes, oh, you I changed. changed. I did. I did. Oh, I did. okay. Yeah. I, well, you'll hear about that later. Okay. Well, what is astonishing you? I am astonished by the courage. Um, and I think that's the best word to describe the situation. Um, the courage of Beth Moore and her statement over the weekend warning Christians about Trumpism. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Beth Moore, she is an evangelical uh, Bible teacher, uh, just wildly popular. Um, came into some controversy last year. I think we did a podcast on this. Yeah, we when talked about her she started uh, preaching in churches and she, I think she was giving out her calendar and she said, you know, on such and such day, I will be preaching at a church. Well, Southern Baptist denomination and others said, no, you're a woman, you can't preach. And then there was another prominent uh, male preacher who said, you know, she needs to go home. And uh, so that was the controversy last year. Well, she has released this, I believe it was uh, in the form of a tweet, warning Christians about Trumpism and has uh, received quite a bit of criticism and praise, lots of praise for her courage. Because listen, there's a history of white women being able to ignore oppression and injustice by going along with um, the ism of the white majority, whatever that form happens to take, even though uh, they themselves are oppressed by patriarchy, for many white women, you could say, well, at least, you know, I may not be number one, but I'll be number two. And so Mm -hmm. I think it just takes an extraordinary amount of courage and sacrifice to step out of that and say, no, I am going to proclaim a different reality um, um, at the cost of my own comfort. And I think that's what Beth Moore is doing. And uh, she certainly gets um, uh, a hand clap from me. This is what she wrote. I do not believe these are days for mincing words. I'm 63 and a half years old and I have never seen anything in the United States of America I found more astonishingly seductive and dangerous to the saints of God than Trumpism. This Christian nationalism is not of God. Move back from it. I think it's such a powerful, again, courageous statement. 
because for so many white evangelical Christians to be American and Christian are pretty much synonymous and they just have a hard time separating the two. And I think what Beth Moore is calling for is um, clarity and truth and um, (laughs) well, toward the end of her statement or at some point in the statement, she says, um, listen, we don't need to crown any flesh, whether Trump or Biden or anyone else. We don't need to call anyone our Cyrus because we have a king and his name is Jesus. And we're the church and we need to remember that. And so what is on the surface a very theologically right, biblically right, truthful statement is being met with lots of anger uh, from conservative evangelicals. I mean, the the mean-spiritedness of especially male pastors. Yep. I, I, I just can't even read some of the comments because they are so um, misogynistic. I, I just, yeah, yeah it's I terrible. Mean, what I think is so interesting about all of it, I mean, I understand why the backlash is so vicious because, I mean, she is naming the truth that this... Um, Christian national that it is Christian nationalism and that means it is hypocrisy and that and means idolatry that, correct and that means that these are court prophets right like the, you know the, we we have we see where we fit in the narrative and it is on the sides of you know Pharisees and Han- um, what's the name <laughs> I'm thinking Hannibal but that's not it what's the name of the court prophet who went up against Jeremiah oh I don't know. I'm now messing up with that name. But I mean, I mean, there's just, this isn't, there's nothing new under the sun. Thank you, Ecclesiastes. And and so this idea that there are times when the people of God decide that their national identity is their spiritual identity and decide that they are the chosen people. And so that means that what um, other people do that offends God doesn't offend God when they do it and that the rules don't apply to us. I mean, that, that's, I mean, that is the witness of the, of the Hebrew scripture and, you know, and Jesus had his harshest words for hypocrites. And so, and I also just think this idea that, you know, I grew up my early exposure to the Bible, learning that Pharisees were just these horrible, terrible people, and there was no good in them. And then, you know, you get a more contextualized, nuanced understanding of Mm -hmm. who the Pharisees were. And, and much, I think, um, generously, like much of the um, contemporary white evangelical church, like these people are not caricatures of evil. I mean, there's lots of real sincere goodness and sincere love for the Lord in those communities, even if, um, even even I'll try to be super generous and say even among the leaders in those communities, but that doesn't mean that they're not accountable for the ways that they condone evil. And there was a great article that was published today um, calling out the six presidents of the six Southern Baptist seminaries for being complicit with evil because they, of course, you know, released this lengthy statement denouncing critical race theory. Um, but you know, no similar statements denouncing racism or police brutality. And so the, and and I don't know his name. Um, I, I've got it on my Facebook page. I mean, the author of this statement was a um, black Southern Baptist preacher, retired. And I mean, he just, 
um, his, his biblical exegesis is just a hundred percent spot on. There's just, you know, he said like, you all have built a Christianity entirely, um, out of Paul. So, I mean, if you only read Paul, then you would never know that Jesus was born this, you know, into poverty and born out of scandal. And you would never know that Jesus opposed the Pharisees. I mean, it would all just be this universal ontological, theoretical, basically, um, you know, great, great Greek philosophical um, uh, version of the Christian tradition. You wouldn't have any of the embodiedness that helps us put flesh in any of the incarnational theology. And, and I think that's really true. And I am a, I'm a fan of Paul. I mean, as are you, like, it's not that I want to throw Paul out at all. It's just, ironically, the very branches of the church that often include and somewhat justifiably will, will hurl the accusation at progressive um, parts of the church that, that, that progressive Christians are picking and choosing out of scripture. But I mean, the, the reality is the same is true when you basically preach a gospel that says nothing that happens on this earth matters. Um, and, and Jesus is good with everything. Basically that um, loving people means just condoning all their behavior, except for <laughs> their private sexual encounters, which are God's business. But um, anyway, so I, on the one hand, I, I mean, I, I, I appreciate hearing that you are, um, grateful for her statement. I am grateful for her statement. And I recognize the real cost um, that that will bring to her. I, I also am just saddened that that's a controversial statement in that part of the body of Christ. And I, I'm saddened, like I'm grateful she's making the statement now. And this is not the first time that she said controversial things. But I mean, this is, you know, four, five years into this ideology in the church. And so, you know, I'm a little torn because on the one hand, I do want to celebrate people when they take stands and pay the cost and speak out. On the other hand, I mean, I think that it's fair. And I'm saying this as a white woman, like it's, it's fair to sort of um, hold off on the ticker tape parade because, um, you know, it's just complicated. And so you don't want to punish people for doing what is right, even if it is later than you wanted it. And also, um, you know, there are a lot of people who've been driven out of the evangelical world a long, long time ago because they made these kinds of statements. And so on the one hand, I can see how it would be the timing of the Lord, you know, to allow her to have the kind of platform that she has that gives her an impact um, that can't be ignored. And I think that's one reason why so many of these male leaders are so threatened because Beth Moore is as much a part of white Christian evangelical culture as I, skinny jeans. Like it's just, um, so it's, so it's a threat. Like um, I also just was reading the relevant article about it and I think it was relevant and they, they gave the term, they were talking about the backlash and they said, Theobrogen's heads are exploding. I thought this idea of bro and theologian, theobrogen was about, just gave me such deep, deep pleasure. And it's true. Like people are really, really attacking her. Um, and I'm, and I'm sorry for that, but we have to pick yeah. sides sometimes without, and you know, she's not attacking anyone. She is exactly, not. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And for me, I also recognize the importance of allies, right? And so, mm -hmm. well, no, I should put it this way. The importance mm -hmm. of 
imperfect allies. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and, and I can embrace her as an important or imperfect ally. Well, that is a very good segue. Well, <laughs> oh, you have I one had, more thing. Yeah. Well, I had one more thing and I just lost it. Well, Sorry. rats, rats, rats. Well, it'll come back. It'll come back. Um, Segway, I, segue. I messed up yeah, your segue. No, no, no. It's fine. I mean, this idea of an imperfect ally and embracing an imperfect ally. And I think you're right, Beth Moore, in this instance, is a great example of an imperfect ally who we want to um, support and encourage. And, you know, we carry this tre treasure in jars of clay. So mm -hmm. we only have one savior and his name is Jesus. And the rest of us are all imperfect and flawed. And, you know, um, but I think that one thing that makes, um, you know, it really healthy and authentic to sort of come alongside somebody is being able to be teachable. Mm -hmm. And there was a story that broke a big story um, that I would call rightly call a scandal that broke in our town, Charlotte, this week, because um, there is a private uh, school, not a Christian school, just a private school, actually pretty close around the corner from the Grove. Um, and this week, the New York Times ran a story about this school, which I think is sort of markets itself as kind of the more progressive elite uh, private school in the city. Um, definitely marketing itself as an elite education. Definitely um, just a, a beautiful um, campus, high price tag, mm -hmm. a very homogenous community. I think I read in the article this week that 7% of the student body is not white. Um, and there Out is of a- 1,700, almost 1,800 students. Yeah, so very small. Mm -hmm. And they um, they are in the New York Times because they, 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 hmm, they disenrolled a black student at their school, a ninth grader. They did not expel him, they say. They disenrolled him. They terminated his enrollment because his mother um, had made a series of complaints and had a series of very frank arguments with the school because in his ninth grade English class, they were going to teach August Wilson's play Fences. And the mother contacted the school um, to share her concerns that it would, you know, to want to understand more about the context within which this play would be presented because her son as the only, definitely the only black student, maybe the only student of color in this ninth grade class and this play um, is a great work of art, clearly, um, and is, and is um, you know, contains lots of instances of the N-word and just a really brutal portrayal of the way systemic racism, um, I would say, shapes the souls of Black folks, um, and is and her concerns, as I understand them, it was that this was one of the only pieces of art featuring black characters that the students were going to encounter. Um, how were they going to handle using the N word when students were reading aloud in class? Like, what kinds of context were they going to give to this? Because for her son, it's very uncomfortable. And if the students don't understand how to, you know, that this isn't. This the tragedy of this story, although it has no white characters in it, I don't think. I mean, it's white people who created the context that creates much of the tragedy within this Black family. And so she didn't want her son's um, student, you know, colleagues and, and her son to be getting the message that like, look at this messed up Black family, 
look how they are not able to, you know, rise above or whatever. And, and when she shared this concern with the school, they dismissed her and sort of said, this is, you know, a wonderful piece of literature, but if you want your kid to have an alternative assignment, we'll give your kid an alternative assignment. And she went back to them and said, but it's bigger than that. Like, it's not a problem for my child (laughs) to read this story. It's a problem for my child to be trying to be in a class with a bunch of white kids who read this story, read this play um, taught by a white teacher with maybe not understanding how these 14 year old kids will internalize these um, themes and represent them to my son or, you know, and so I, I just think that's so um, such a real and legitimate concern. And I can think of a lot of ways, a lot of ways that the school, in my opinion, could have handled that better, but I cannot think of a way they could have handled it worse, which was to say, um, they they said that her um, sharing her concerns with, they sent her immediately to the diversity coordinator of the school, who was a Black woman also, and then they said that this woman's emails to this professional, to the woman in the school were abusive, and so that's why her son was being disenrolled, and they released a public statement sharing quotes from the mother's email and basically presenting the head of staff who is white as somebody who had to come in and like break up this fight between two black women. I mean, it's just like every single trope and, and, and directly presented this woman as an irrational, angry black woman. And it's incredibly offensive. And I, again, like can think of so many ways that the school maybe you know, maybe couldn't have handled it perfectly, but could have handled it better and could have communicated to this mother real, um, real listening, like we hear you, but, but because I think, and I'm reading into this as a a white person who considers herself progressive, you know, we can get so defensive about our identity as an ally. And so, you know, if all you think is, gosh, we're reading August Wilson, why isn't that enough for you? And basically, you know, how dare you accuse me of racism and I know what's best for your kid. And how dare you as a parent think you have something to teach me as a head of school, I mean, just all these sorts of ways where white people is just so easy to slip into white supremacy without even knowing it when sometimes, you know, we think, well, it's benign. Like I'm, I'm centering the needs of this person of color. I know what's best for them. And it's really paternalistic. Um, and it, and it's hard to listen when someone comes to you and actually is um, generous enough to tell you the truth about their concerns, which really conveys, I think, respect. Like, I can see that you're trying to create a certain kind of academic community, and these are ways that your means might work against your ends. And, you know, I just think there are so many ways they could have heard her concerns, and by just removing her from the community, I mean, A, I just think that's terrible leadership. B, I think it's hard if you think you are an ally, then when a person of color comes to you and says, I have concerns, you can't just dismiss them and say, who do you think you are? I'm on your side. Go bleep yourself. And I think often, and I I think there's just a temptation sometimes when you're leading an institution or trying to build a community together that if someone Um, is making you uncomfortable, you think, well, great, the way to solve this problem is just to get rid of this person. (laughs) And it just never, ever, ever works. It never, ever works. And so they, 
I think they thought they had neatly solved the problem by just kicking her out. And then like, bless her, she went to the New York Times. So now (laughs) they, you know, and I, I think that's true. Like we, if we're serious about reconciliation and healing, as I think we must be as a nation, and as we definitely must be as the people of God, then we as white people have to be humble and willing to listen to truths that aren't celebratory. Like it's, it's great when you are in the Beth Moore role and someone is saying like, thank you so much for your courage. And it sucks when you think you're doing the right thing by putting a Pulitzer Prize winning black author on the reading list and a parent comes to you and says, actually, that's not helpful. Like that stinks because you're, you're ready to get your praise for being a good white person. And instead you get told like, actually, this is problematic. And then you have to decide, what do you care about most? Do you care most about this child and the kind of community that you're creating? Or do you care most about your own feelings and your own experience and your own um, label as progressive? So I'm, I'm thinking about that this week. And I'm excited to hear what you think. <laughs> well, <laughs> you said that, um, and I think you're right. You said that this is um, not only um, a real issue, it's a legitimate issue for African-American students and parents. Um, and I would add, it's also a regular issue for students and parents navigating uh, white education, pr- pr- uh, predominantly white educational institutions. It's it's a, just a regular battle in your mind and with the institution, uh, how to navigate these issues um, to both uh, protect and expose your child um, to uh, um, things that are in the world. And um, well, and can I also just say that I, I really appreciate, I want to be clear that I think what's generous about this mother is that in telling this truth, she was not just advocating for her son, she was also advocating for every other white child in that class, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not, I mean, certainly it's not her responsibility to do that, but like, it's not just like, oh, it's not good for the black child in the class it's not good for the white children in the class to get an un uh, to get exposed to something without the context that helps them make sense in it and make yeah. sense of it holistically part of her argument was that they're in the ninth grade and that the issues in the play may be too mature for them to fully process and i, I get that um but i as someone who has been in that situation as a student and now as a parent, increasingly as a parent, um, there's a real issue around self-esteem and trauma for these students, uh, for uh, African-American students in predominantly white institutions. There was a piece yesterday, I can't remember exactly where I saw it, but um, there was a piece announcing that the Cleveland Indians baseball team was dropping the name Indians. And um, I saw an interview with a woman from the Native American community. And she said something like the, the number two cause of death among Native American young people, suicide. Mm-hmm. And she said a lot of it has to do with self-esteem. She says they, they will ask their elders 
when they see things like the Cleveland Indian mascot or other sports team, are they making fun of us? Right. So there, there's just a real deep trauma there. And I think it's really hard for white parents and white students to put themselves in a place of a black student, whether you're one or two or three in a classroom and you're having to um, read a play with the N-word or go visit a slave plantation. There, there's, there's a trauma there. Um, as a matter of fact, one, one student interviewed by the New York Times, I think a previous student of this uh, Providence Day School, said that when she was at the school and they did things like the fences play, she said it felt like a knife going in and out. There's that kind of deep pain and trauma. Um, and so my concern is mostly there. It's not exclusively there. That's where a lot of my concern um, lies. Also, there's just a, a can I pull can I can I just pl uh, play on that for one minute? Because I think that mm -hmm. hearing that is helpful because I think it helps people realize that I think one of the things that the mother is trying to communicate to the staff is, is it a right expectation to expect ninth graders like my son's classmates to be able to be successful in navigating a play full of the N-word in a way that doesn't traumatize my son? Like, mm -hmm. like they're in the ninth grade. So to ninth say, yes. like, do I, do I hope that they would never, you know, intentionally try to hurt a classmate? Sure, I do. But I also think like it is this, it, it's like we don't, you know, we, we don't ask kindergartners to talk about the Holocaust and expect them to be able to navigate that in a way that wouldn't be, um, you know, traumatizing. I mean, like, it's just, mm -hmm. so again, it's not that it can't be done, but I feel like the mom was really saying like, what are you going to do to make sure that all the students have the context they need to, to deal with these subjects in a way that doesn't traumatize my son because kids make mistakes and that's fine, but I don't want them making mistakes on my son's soul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like That's not yeah. fine. Well, and another problem is that in school, whether it's a private school or public school, when it comes to Africanness, basically what you get in this country is slavery, hardship, civil rights struggle, and MLK. That's yeah. pretty much it. And so you don't get um, African civilization, African culture, pre-colonialism, right? You don't get um, uh, the history of, for example, trade between East Africans and Indians uh, mm -hmm. on the subcontinent of, of India, because there were trade winds in, in ancient times, right? There, there was right. a relationship there. You don't get um, African tribes in the country we now call Turkey, and that since we're in Advent, that uh, the original St. Nicholas he was from this particular tribe of Africans in Turkey. And so the, the Santa Claus we know, the jolly yeah. big white man, that is not the historic 
Nicholas, right? He was a skinny right. African. And that's what people mean when they talk about decolonizing education, right? Mm -hmm. That in so many of the times when these lesson plans were put together or we're revising a textbook that it was a revision of a textbook that is a revision of a textbook, those textbooks were written in a time where very consciously and also unconsciously you were presenting world history in such a way that it supported the narrative of colonialism and the narrative of colonialism was Western culture superiority. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't mm -hmm. teach children this true history about the sophistication of cultures other than European cultures, because that didn't fit the narrative of, yeah, we came over and slaughtered all these people and enslaved them, but it was actually doing them a favor because they were, quote, savages that we were civilizing, right? So that- And you ignore that the whole history of Christianity on the continent before Europeans arrived, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. And so well, that's why, yeah. Uh, well, another issue for me in this situation, and I read that same New York Times article, which I thought was very good, um, it, there's just um, a hypocrisy here, right? Yeah. Because a couple of months ago, there was a charter school in the northern part of our city, mostly white, and the white families lost oh. their minds. Yes. Be remember this? Remember this? Yes, it's because, still ongoing. Because their children were asked to read a novel and the main character, a teenage girl, was struggling with her faith. She's just struggling with her faith, as we all do from time to time, right? So this teenage girl is struggling with her Christian faith, and parents are losing their minds because they say the book is anti-Christian. And they want not only their they want, children not, not only they want it banned child, they want it banned like that because their child was already given an, an alternative assignment and they said the same thing it's not just that we don't want our child to read it we don't want any other children to read it because it creates a hostile environment for our child and those people have not been expelled from the charter school um although a I hostile think, environment uh, just let's, yeah. let's see with that a hostile environment for those who are in the majority Right. Well, that's and <laughs> and and side by side, you know, next to that, an inability to have the empathy for this woman and her fourteen-year-old son in that Providence Day classroom. Right. You just don't see it. Just don't have a sense of, oh, we know what that feels like. <laughs> we know what yeah. it feels like um, to think that our children are being exposed to something that is harmful to them, right? We know what that's like. Instead of, instead of taking that position, it's no, you're out of this school, sorry. Your, your mother is just an angry black woman, sorry. Well, and basically, like it really reveals what the values are of diversity among the leadership of that school, because mm -hmm. what you're basically saying is we you can come here if we let you in as long as you don't complain. And if you have anything to offer that's anything other than wholehearted praise, get out because you were lucky to be here in the first place. And I think, yeah. you know, one of the things as, as two pastors trying to create healthy 
multi-ethnic communities, like it's really important as hard. I mean, we're both conflict averse and we talk about that a lot and it is hard um, to, to do your sincere best, authentic best, and then have someone come and tell you like, actually this thing that you intended for good actually wounded me and caused me pain or this thing that you're trying to do for values that we agree on actually is having the opposite effect. Like that is hard. But I think that one of the great gifts of intercultural communities for people of faith in particular is, you know, when our community is homogenous and comfortable, what we end up really worshiping is a version of ourselves, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's just easy to think like the way that we think, talk, act, believe that we're really good people and we're all sort of celebrating and agreeing on what goodness is. And the gift of healthy intercultural communities where someone can come in and say, actually, I can tell you the truth because I'm safe enough here that I can say, this isn't helpful and this is harmful and this is what I need. The gift of that, um, it, it is the discomfort, right? Because the discomfort helps you recognize that what is holy and good in the community isn't, isn't any of the people involved. It's, it's the Lord and it's in that discomfort that you grow. And so it's just so sad that that school, instead of leaning into that discomfort and saying like, wow, we thought we were doing something great for all of our students. And instead one of the students that we most wanted to affirm through this lesson plan was potentially going to be harmed by it. So that exposes to us that we don't know what we thought we know. And instead of leaning into that and saying like, okay, well, how can we, you know, really dig deep and, and hear this and, and listen to the mother, whether she's saying not yet, or, you know, here are some other resources, here's some other people we can bring in to team teach, like whatever that is, But instead of leaning into that discomfort and learning something that would help you grow into becoming an authentically healthier version of who you believe you already are, you just get rid of the discomfort. You just get rid of the person and then you are comfortable and you are once again, completely ignorant and blind to the reality, which is that your school community is not a safe space for people of color and it's not a healthy space for white people. Yes. Um, and I think my, maybe not my biggest concern, but in the list of concerns about this situation and what Beth Moore was pointing to, is that I'm, I'm just so mindful of the watchful eye of non-Christians, especially yeah. young people. I'm so concerned that they are watching the church and watching Christians and concluding, if 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 that's Christianity, I, I'm not I sure if it. I want a part of that, right? I, I think yeah. it was um, Gandhi who was famous for saying something like, you know, Jesus, I really like. I, I really like your like Christ. Yes. Yeah, I like your Christ. But these Christians, I don't like Christians. Yeah, yeah, they they don't seem to represent him very well. I'm very concerned that the church today is doing that in a way that we don't yet see the negative impact uh, of um, when it comes to young non-Christians, especially in the area of race and nationalism. I just think they they are watching and uh, they are concluding, they're drawing conclusions about our gospel that are false. Right. Well, and I, I think like, I really appreciate your sharing 
some of what it is like to be a black student in a predominantly white space or a space that's really been shaped by norms of white supremacy because I think um, just what you said about like the students saying it's like a dagger every time someone uses the n-word and I think like one of the things we have to realize is that like for white students in that space it's theoretical and for black students in that space it's it's trauma and and when we don't help anyone in that space navigate that sensitively like you would not say hey I want my kids to learn about sexual violence so what I'm going to do is go have them sit in on a rape crisis group and ask questions of the people sitting right like you just don't do that and I think um you know one of the things that I remember about my time in seminaries I was part of a group that we were it was kind of a social justice group and we would um like have uh provide lunch for the seminarians and like then do a presentation about a different um international issue um usually to do with um justice issue and and so one day we and three white women who had started this group um we just sort of very casually i mean we picked north korea like we were going to talk about the famine and hardship in north korea and so we you know, whatever, we did our little, I'm sure, ridiculously superficial research, and we ordered the wraps, and we were ready, and we gave this whole presentation, and there were lots of people there, and then afterwards, oh my gosh, I was just such an asshole, like, we opened up the space for questions, and I mean, I think a third of the population at BU were Korean students, Mm -hmm. and so they started to get up and speak about their knowledge and their lived experience. And I just remember at the time being like, oh my gosh, like what a fool and how insensitive it was, A, for us to stand up here and act as if we were educating people in our seminary community about what was happening in North Korea when we were hugely ignorant And then B, not to realize that for us, this was like a theoretical thing happening on the other end of the world. And and for students in our community, this was their lived history and not even their past trauma, but their present trauma. And, you know, that was really, and they were incredibly gracious, like embarrassingly gracious, um, understand a lot more about the body of Christ than I think a lot of white American Christians ever will. And so I think, you know, expressed what I think was sincere gratitude that, that we had noticed the problem, but like, I can look back now and just be like, oh my gosh, even as we were trying to be whatever social justice warrior allies, Mm -hmm. we were unintentionally, but really wounding people Mm -hmm. and, and functioning in white supremacy even without an awareness of that. And I think like that's the danger of a school like PDS that you you really mean to be on the side of the angels, but but just because you didn't intend to hurt someone doesn't mean that you don't. And Listen, there's a huge power imbalance. Peter thought he was doing a good thing after Jesus said he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And yep. he said, no, this must never happen to you. And Jesus and he, said, get behind me. Satan. Get behind me. It's and he thought he was doing a good right, thing right, later on right, when he right. stopped, you know, eating with Gentiles, right? Like there you he go. thought he was doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's just really important for us to know our own history that the Jesus in us is holy, but the us in us is not. Yes. And, 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 and go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, if you're a student in that context, if you're a student in that context, then what's happening in that moment 
is that your fight or flight response is kicking in. And, and they, and those things can take many forms. Yeah. So if it's flight, like what I did was I decided to become small. I decided to become invisible for others. It meant dropping out. It's like, okay, this is too much. I'm physically out for others. It was just kind of a, a mental, emotional checking out for others. It meant, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go even harder to fit in. I'm going to go even harder to deny my blackness in order to fit into the majority. And for others, it's, you know, it, there, there's, there's a fight. And again, mm-hmm. that takes different forms. So, and this is some real, this is therapy level trauma. And yep. I think people really need to get that. Uh, and I think, well, and I just think as white people, really, we need to understand that it is the great privilege purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ to be in relationships with, um, with people and communities who we have and continue to harm in very real ways. And, and so, so to know that that is such a precious gift bought for us by the reconciling blood of Jesus Christ, and also to recognize that your good intentions don't mitigate real harm that you're causing. And so we are just used to walking into spaces and assuming that we know how to behave and how to act but all those norms are centered around whiteness. And so to really, you know, just to be aware that our intentions don't matter. Like if you, if you, um, if you harm a child by using the N word, either teaching an August Wilson play or calling them out, I mean, you still harmed them. Like no matter what your intention was, they're still harmed. And it's sort of like the, the most insidious part of, of white supremacy that we think that the harm that we do is somehow excused by our intentions. And that's where that whole thing of like, I'm not racist. Right? Like, and we keep as if this idea of saying like, well, what you're saying doesn't matter. What matters is my heart. I mean, no, your heart doesn't matter. Like, Well, we saw the same thing over the summer, uh, especially early spring or late spring, early summer in some mega churches have white pastors, majority white staff, majority white congregations, but some black staff members and some black congregants. When you have um, uh, the George Floyd murder and um, tension with the police and Charlottesville and other things, some of those congregants, some of those staff members went to the leaders of the church and say, listen, we need you to speak out. We need you to say something about this. And there was a refusal. And so in some of these mega churches, Black folks have been leaving because the intent, the heart mm-hmm. of these white pastors was say, hey, we're all together. We're all one family under... Um, one family under this one roof, but they caused harm by an unwillingness to have the kind of courage that Beth Moore has shown. Well, and I just think when you say to someone like, I love you, I really, really love you. Why don't you understand that I love you? And someone is saying, okay, but 
you're harming me. Mm -hmm. So no matter how sincerely you believe that you love me, you're harming me. And so I know that if you don't care, if your solution to my hurt is get over it, or you shouldn't feel hurt, or your pain is invalid, then you might believe that that's love, but I know that it is not, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why, you know, there's a really common um, idea in, in activism in general that you, if you are solving a problem, but the people who are most affected by the problem have no voice in creating the solution, then it's not going to be a solution. It's going to be a solution that powerful people can stand and it's going to maybe mitigate the harm that people think is valid, but the people who are actually suffering, unless they're crafting um, helping to craft and really empowered to help craft that solution, then it's not going to be a solution. It might make you feel better. And, and I think that's sort of the idea of like what makes a really authentic, holy and healthy intercultural um, multi-ethnic community is it's got to be a space where people in general, but, but people who have been historically disenfranchised and dishonored in our country, where those people have the freedom to come forward and say, actually, this doesn't feel good. Actually, I'm being hurt. And that hopefully those folks are, I mean, they have to be in leadership. They have to be in leadership, but also um, that, that the leadership posture is we need to listen deeply to this and um, the benefit of the doubt needs to be given to the people who are telling the truth about their pain. Um, so um, we are, my phone is running out of battery and we are running out of time. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> just so well, let me, let me segue into what we're preaching because I think um, one of the issues uh, in both of these situations, Beth Moore and Providence State School uh, with this um, uh, play and, and the student and uh, his mother um, is the issue of love. And this is mm -hmm. Love Sunday. Love Sunday. And, uh, I, I think Beth Moore is is pointing to pointing Christians toward love. I think this uh, this mother saying, "Look, <laughs> this is show us some love here. This is if you love me, you will listen to my pain." And mm -hmm. so um, this fourth Sunday of Advent is the love Sunday, and I <laughs> I always get nervous <laughs> on this Sunday um, because love can be such a uh, light, um, sappy, kind of sentimental. Precious moments. Yeah, That's thank the you. I like yes, to precious <laughs> moments. Um, but if 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 we're looking at biblical love, then there's there's something about sacrifice. It it costs something. It's about the other. It's not about you. It's about the other, um, and it is about action. It is not a sentimental feeling. And so I'm looking forward to emphasizing that on Sunday. And I've, I've changed the text. I'm going to go with a non-traditional Advent or non-traditional Christmas text. And um, I'm just going to keep it simple with, with John 3.16, God so loved the world, right? And the, what, what is getting my attention is the world. It doesn't say God so loved the Christians, or so love the Christians in your denominations, your denomination, or so love the people who think like you, have your values. God so loved the world. Um, and I, I just want to land there for a while and, and, and wallow in God's love for 
the whole world. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to do the Magnificat and I think sort of the same theme of saying Mary's song um, after meeting Elizabeth and having the sign of the fulfillment. I mean, her song is about what is happening when the Messiah is born and, and talking um, initially about herself and her own experience, but quickly moving on to this universal vision of um, the, the proud being cast down and the rich being sent away empty and the hungry being filled up and, and just this grand reversal, which is really centered around injustice mm. and bringing justice. And so I think in the church, a lot of times, um, and especially in the culture war within the church, there's sort of this um, battle, which is not often explicitly named, but this idea that like, well, there's a war between love and justice and Jesus comes down on the side of love. And so we really need to understand that, you know, if love is the precious moments, like sentimental, make everybody feel good. I mean, A, Jesus, it's not, it doesn't even work. Like it only works if you're only listening to certain powerful people. Right. But, uh, but it's not, you know, people are not being loved when we are watching them be um, watching and participating in the enemy, stealing, killing, and destroying their lives mm-hmm. and saying like, well, you should have tried harder, should have mm-hmm. pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, or that wasn't my intention. I mean, the reality is if we love our neighbors, then we hear the cry of those who are suffering injustice and we respond. And and again, the whole covenant of Israel was built on this premise that Israel as the chosen nation was going to be a light to all the other nations and that the people who held power in Israel were going to hold that power to lift up those who were weakest so that the king would be the, the recourse for the widow and the stranger and the orphan and that power would be used to lift up, not crush down. And so I, I just, I want to play with that idea that love and justice are not opposed to one another. Mm. And in fact, any love that ignores justice is, is idolatrous. It's a false love. And um, that, that really there's, it might not be comfortable to look at justice and to cry out against injustice. And it might not always feel good, um, but it, that is, I mean, that is the cross. I mean, that is Jesus saying you know, I refuse to participate in these systems and powers that are, um, that, that are degrading the most vulnerable people in our society. But I also refuse to um, demonize them. Like I'm going to display the truth of what these systems are on my own flesh. And I think that is what we, much as we don't want to, like, we want to believe that being called more than conquerors means we get the best seats on the airplane every time. But what it means is to be more than a conqueror means more than a conqueror. So a conqueror who just destroys their enemies by any means necessary. No, we're more than that, that we are unafraid of suffering and unafraid of death and are willing to lay down our lives like Jesus did, confident that our lives are safe in the Lord's hands and that we too will know resurrection. And so I, I think, um, and, and I'm eager to do this because I feel like, you know, people recognize, especially in our congregations, like they recognize that justice is a biblical theme. And I think are, are pretty tolerant of 
they're going to hear about it a lot. Like they're not going to be part of our congregations if they, if they aren't. But I do think there's this idea that like, well, can you just give it a rest at Christmas? Cause Christmas isn't about that. Christmas is about like comfort yeah. and joy and to say like, no, no, no. Justice is a Christmas theme. Like if this is not different, it's not like we get a break from this. It's not like there's something more important. This is an integral part of the story. And that's why the Magnificat is Mary's song. So, mm-hmm. and I think that's so interesting and so right. And at another point, another time, I want to talk about um, the use of traditional theology for um, what people call progressive ends. Right. So I I think there's a, a place where um, right. It's traditional theology that le- that um, led my ancestors to stand up for Amen. their rights, yep. right? Um, and so I-, I think we should never, ever, ever abandon these biblical themes and ideas uh, to those who would um, uh, empty them of their power and true meaning. I agree. I'm down to 3%. I got to wrap up. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to hear Yolanda's message, you should go over to the Derrida, D-E-R-I-T-A, Derrida Church YouTube channel in Charlotte, North Carolina, and listen to him um, give this message on Sunday. You should also check out their website. Just Google Derrida Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you'll get popped over. And you can listen to his older message all of his binge-worthy content is on the podbean <laughs> website search for derida presbyterian church and if you want to know more about the grove you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org if you want to worship with us on sunday um, you can join us on facebook live um, search for the grove church it's a green tree and uh, if you want to hear just the messages um, from this week or any other week you can go to itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and search for um, the Grove Church Podcast. So thank you so much for listening. And we'll make a podcast next week, right? We can squeeze that in. Why not? It's just Christmas week. We got this. Whatever. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.